Balaval, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And Balaval, I was trying to kind of sum up, you know, everything that you do. And here's my go at it. So you're a former product manager at Google. You just left, but you know, last week. So congrats on that. You were there for nearly six years. You have a YouTube uh, channel called Billy FX with nearly, I think, 400,000 subs. You have a TikTok with a million followers, also Billy FX. You have an awesome newsletter called the Creative Tech Digest. And you recently started an awesome podcast called the Creative Technology Podcast. So I was thinking, I was like, okay, how, how can I describe like what you do? And what I came, came up with was teacher, student, and creative on the forefront of the metaverse. How is that? I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Perfect. Amazing. Awesome, man. Well, well, you know, I'd love to hear more about your background because it seems like you've been obviously up to some really, really incredible stuff. So tell me all about like maybe even pre-Google. The Birch version is, you know, I'm a creative technologist, product builder, and a content creator. And grew up across India, the UK, and the US, so a little bit of a global upbringing. And the computer graphics bug bit me early, man. So 12-year-old, I got into visual effects, uh, self-taught myself 3ds Max, Maya, all these fun tools, After Effects. And that sort of started this theme in my life, you know, uh, blending the physical and digital world, or the creative version of that blending reality and imagination. Ended up studying... Uh, computer science and business at the University of Southern California, right as like mobile boom was happening. So all of my background in VFX and 3D got channeled into product design. And then I basically spent a decade in tech, almost exclusively across AR, VR, and 3D mapping. I was like a lame Google Glass Explorer back in 2013. So back in the early days uh, of AR, done everything from enterprise AR to consumer AR, VR, and of course, uh, both enterprise and consumer 3D mapping technologies. Along the way, I've been flexing my creative muscles, uh, hence the YouTube and TikTok, and really started taking that stuff seriously around the pandemic when I didn't have to sit in this like godforsaken bus from uh, San Francisco to, to Mountain View. And here we are today, generative AI blowing up, creative technology is at the forefront, and I couldn't be more thrilled to be a part of it. That's amazing. All right, so creative technology, like, you know, what, what is that? Because it's so hard to, in my mind, define what's going on now. And shortly after this, I'm going to ask you, like, what is the metaverse, which is even harder. But like, what, what is creative technology? You know, it's happening now, but I can't say it in like a s simplistic way. It's hard, right? Like, I would say it's like the art and science of visual effects and 3D animation and augmented reality. Any place where you're using, you know, technological building blocks in service of a story or an experience or even even a, a creation tool itself, right? So I think it has an impact on both the creation and the consumption side, uh, how you create content and then how you engage and consume with content, either in a passive fashion or in an active fashion, which is perhaps of interest to you and your audience with things like, in quotes, the metaverse, right? So I think of creative technology as like this, like nexus of a bunch of these disciplines, and the expertise around it has been sort of littered across, you know, uh, a bunch of different verticals, right? You've got computer vision aspects to it. You've got computer graphics aspects to it. You've obviously got the traditional art and storytelling aspect to it. And you sort of bring it all together. I, I, the banner term I like is creative technology. Love it. All right. So metaverse, what is the metaverse? How do you define it? How do you describe it? 
I feel like I've changed my definition of it a million different times. So yeah, I want to hear from you. What is it? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, let me pull out the Matthew Ball <laughs> 17 point <laughs> definition. Just kidding. No, um, love Matthew's writings. Though. I would say the metaverse to me is basically a, a spatial embodiment of the internet we all know and love. Um, one that isn't a bunch of two dimensional, you know, document object models, like a, basically a bunch of docs interconnected together with hyperlinks. And really web 2.0 is still that. Maybe we got some like fancier user experience on mobile and web, but to metaverse to me starts mirroring the physical world as you and I know it, right? And we embody ourselves in it in a more intuitive way. Our identity, the spaces and places we care about, the experiences we care about. Critically, it's not just an escapist fantasy. I think that's a piece of it. Uh, you can have two modes. There's the, you know, get rid of everything and like pull me away from reality, not be constrained by it. But on the other hand, layering the internet on top of the real world, connecting bits and atoms, if you will, is equally a part of this like rather lofty concept. And then AR VR devices to me are a more spatial first way to engage with the internet. It's not required. You can use the metaverse on a 2D device, but certainly it's far more intuitive on a 3D spatial device versus, you know, your 2 off mouse and a 2D screen. So will it be centralized, decentralized, some hybrid? I think that's all orthogonal. But at the end of the day, it's a more spatial, more intuitive, more human-centric version of the internet. And why do you think that the term metaverse, you know, went from like people almost didn't really care about it? And then now it's almost like cringy. So why, why is that? Yeah, it did have like a moment under the sun last year. And I was like, all everyone could talk about. And then, you know, it sort of petered out. And actually the year before, right? 2021 is really when the hype started. I think we're seeing hype cycles get compressed more and more. We're in the midst of like, you know, the next hype cycle, which is obviously generative AI right now. I think what happened is VR AR started off you know, ostensibly in, in, in 2013 with the glass stuff and then 2014 with Oculus and the acquisition, but nobody really knew where that was headed. Right. And then the metaverse, I think in 2021 presented perhaps a lofty, but you know, a fairly descriptive depiction of what the future of computing could look like. And so, you know, we as humans and I think uh, certainly industry professionals and VCs are always looking for the next trend to, to, to invest in the next wave to write and the metaverse sort of seem to be that, right? Like install base of like hardware devices were going up. We had a massive, you know, like a pandemic. And uh, as a consequence of that, all these trends got accelerated, remote work, Zoom, all these things that we never thought would happen. And so suddenly everyone who was saying, hey, not AR is the future, suddenly thought VR is. And then the perfect encapsulation of sort of this like dimensional 3D interactive internet became in quotes, the metaverse. What was most interesting to me, though, Andrew, was like how every company painted the vision for the metaverse from their own like unique perspective. It was like interesting to see how Epic was talking about it versus Meta. I mean, they, they freaking rebranded the whole thing. I wonder how they feel about that rebranding right now. Uh, and then even Microsoft with like the enterprise metaverse and Snapchat sort of distancing itself from the term, but still kind of talking about the same things, uh, you know, maybe just saying AR instead. So now what we're seeing is like, oh, yeah, actually, you know, hardware is hard, you know, like atoms are harder than bits. Right. And so I think it's going to take a while for these devices to catch on. And I think it's just been subsumed or replaced by generative AI because it's not only here and now it can kind of like permeate and fuse itself into all the devices and services and product experiences we use today. So that's why I think like these just these hype, like hype cycles are getting compressed and 
maybe that's a little bit of the anxiety everyone feels in the industry. I'm curious, uh, what's your take on the boom and the bust of the metaverse, if you will? I think that you're right about the hype cycles being condensed. And, you know, we had Web3. Uh, it's still it's still around, but there was a, obviously a crazy hype cycle in 21 for, for anything crypto Web3. And yeah. if the issue with a lot of, you know, I don't know, society, whatever you want to call it today, where if it's if it's not impacting your life right now, then it's kind of like people are like, okay, you know, what what else is there, right? In my mind, Web3 has always been like a multi-decade play. Metaverse, same thing. It's a multi, multi-decade play evolution. But AI, I mean, that blew everyone away because it was, it was applicable right now. It wasn't like, hey, guys, multi-decade, it's going to change blah, 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 X, Y, Z. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. You can use it right now here. Generate images, you know, generate text, generate audio, whatever. And that, I think, has, has blown a lot of people away, including myself. I mean, the, the pace of, of that innovation has just been incredible. So I get why people are, you know, if you're talking about this new technology, like they want it now versus like, hey, don't tell me it's going to be 10 years from now, right? So I get that. Well, I want to dive really deep with you in, in AI in a bit, but building off that, how are you thinking the metaverse, quote unquote, is going to evolve going forward? Like, it, it, are we just going to one day, you know, Apple's going to release their AR glasses and then suddenly, you know, we're going to walk around and we're going to see augmented reality and that's kind of, that's more, you know, the metaverse is evolving there. We're going to have better VR. Like h- how is this metaverse going to evolve? Cause I, I know we're in it now, hence why, you know, we've been talking like, you know, remotely on, on, on you know, video and audio, that's right, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Just t- tell me about that evolution. It's a great question. I, you know, it's, it's hard to predict these things, but given that a lot of the metaverse adoption is hinged on devices. I do agree with you that like a mainstream moment, like an Apple XR AR headset would certainly boost things. You know, Google and Samsung announced a partnership on similar lines about a month ago. And so like suddenly, you know, headsets were in vogue. And then it was basically meta sort of carrying and seeding the the install base and hats off to Zuck and meta for doing that. I think it needs to be more mainstream than that, right? As on the consumption, like the device side, the interaction device side, I think there's also a lot of hard technical problems to solve, right? Like um, in our async conversation, we talked about like uh, you alluded to storage and compute, right? Like certainly that's a huge piece of it. Um, you know, before this conversation, we were talking about, oh yeah, you know, like the recording may get laggy, but like Riverside's recording this stuff locally. When we're talking about like massively co-present, persistent virtual worlds, you know, we need to figure out how to how to make that stuff happen, right? Like, obviously, sharding is a solution to some of that. But that's not really like the, hey, I'm going to go to virtual Coachella with like 10,000 people and just go vibe with people. It's more like here's like a bunch of small chat rooms where you can have some fun and like VR chat or whatever, or even Fortnite, right? Like, what I think is going to happen is it's going to be like, clearly, AI has sort of taken the attention of all the large players. And I would say a lot of the venture, like the the investment in the space, too. So I think that's going to slow down the metaverse in quotes a little bit. At the same time, I think generative AI is going to be so crucial to populating the metaverse, right? Like whether that was Web3, whether that was like, you know, the centralized or decentralized version of the metaverse, everyone talked about like the barrier to create 3D content is so high. Like I grew up learning these like esoteric tools like Autodesk Mayan. There's like, you know, 30 year old code bases and all this crap that you have to learn just to make 3D stuff. And Luckily, apps like TikTok have made that easier for video, and that hasn't quite happened for 3D. So I'm almost hoping generative AI, like now that it's being like pulled to the center of attention for investment, is going to actually seed a bunch of the technology we need to populate these metaverses. And and I do think it's plural, by the way, hence the internet, interconnected and internet. Maybe you could call that the metaverse in singular. You know, that becomes so many philosophical debates to be had. But regardless, 
content problem will get solved. And then what we'll see is like very like incremental use cases sort of layering on top of each other. Obviously, I'm biased. Like I worked on a bunch of the augmented reality, the world scale AR stuff. So I think like that's going to be a fundamental building block. Like, you know, we launched the geospatial API that lets you like attach 3D content to the world in 100 countries. That's the most ubiquitous 3D canvas out there available to developers at no cost. Yes, it's mobile AR now. And like, you know, Lime, you know, micromobility companies like Lime or Bird are using it to make parking easier and like keep streets clean. And Gorillaz is using it to stage like a concert in, you know, in Times Square. But where I think this is all going to go is like when headsets come online and glasses come online, all of this platform is slowly being seeded by a bunch of different players and a bunch of different companies. And so we'll see layer by layer these capabilities stack on top of each other until one day you and I are in like a fully virtual embodied experience. We've got our like Kodak avatars and like, you know, we're live streaming this with multi-camera edits and all of that. So I think... It's going to take a while to get there. And maybe the last piece I'll say that is really missing in all of this is interoperability. Maybe you relate to this given your background is like, not only do we have esoteric tools that make it hard to create content, making sure these content can jump between experiences, not just the assets themselves, but when you attach interactivity to them, how do you take that whole like scene graph and have it translate to a completely different world with different rules. There's so much thinking that needs to happen that I just think it'll take time. It'll be step by step. Do you think the internet has made the world a better place? I think it's always good and bad. Technology to me is always the ultimate double-edged sword. And I particularly feel that way about the internet and social media. I think it's like, in one way, it like I don't think the AI revolution we're talking about right now could have happened without it. The internet gave an opportunity for humans across the world to connect. And Web2 sort of democratized text and photo, kind of. And so we started populating, we started creating these digital twins of our societies effectively online, right? Like with the internet. So I think like, gosh, in terms of democratization of information, wow, like the potential has been phenomenal. It like gives me tingles just thinking about sort of this like, hive mind entity that we're all sort of like contributing to. On the other hand, <laughs> it is an apparatus of immense amount of control and influence and control and influence both in a, you know, a centralized sense, like sort of the hub and spoke model, if you will, but also in terms of like, you know, Snowden revelations, prism, all that stuff. This is right around when I was like graduating college when this stuff happened, 2013, 2012, actually, I think is when Snowden happened. 20, and it was just like, you know, the tip of the iceberg, right? But on the other hand, it's also at the edges of these nodes, right? You can have bad actors uh, co-opt, you know, algorithms that put content out there, such as, you know, a social media platform. We're not going to single any one of them out because it's not their fault, but it can become this method of, you know, spreading vast amounts of disinformation. And so I think it's good and bad, and it's always going to be like that. And you layer an AI on top of that, holy hell, it is... Like you just turn that up to 11, the upside and the downside. Okay. So expanding off that, you know, will the metaverse be a, a force for good in the world, right? Or, or will it be any different than the internet? It has the opportunity to be two kind of futures. And I'll paint the extremes because I think always the answer is in the balance. And that'll be sort of, you'll notice a theme in all my answers. And in, in this conversation is going to be about like walking the line that is like, you know, sharper than the edge of a sword. So the two extremes to me are like, let's just take VR and AR as like guinea pigs of the extremes. VR, you could have like the Cartman episode of like, I'm playing World of Warcraft and my mommy's like coming and giving me like hot pockets and like swapping out my like poop tray 
and you know, you're just getting like Mountain Dew straight to the vein and you're just consuming content all day, every day, the Wally dystopian future, if you will. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, it's like, you know, we're deeply connected to like the world around us. It's all augmented reality, but we've all sort of like succumbed to this like, you know, system, like, you know, think of it like um, the brave new world on steroids, if you will. It's like this sort of dystopian utopia. And so like, I think of those two worlds, like one where we're deeply connected to the world and then one where we're sort of deeply disconnected from the world. And I, and I hope the metaverse kind of affords a path somewhere in the middle where it's just far more intuitive. Like ostensibly when I look at my cousins who are Gen Z, they're already like sucked into their goddamn devices. And I totally sound like a millennial with back pain <laughs> saying this, but like, you know, like the metaverse is here now. You would alluded to this is the two and a half D metaverse that we're sort of perhaps engaging in right now. So I, I think the answer is going to be in the balance and it can like amplify the good and the bad. I certainly think there is a ton of potential for it to be less taxing on us than looking at these like slabs of glass on our on our phone. But at the same time, I do worry about what happens when we sort of jack into the matrix, so to speak. Like we're genuinely laying the substrate for the matrix, right? And so like, I hope we don't end up powering, you know, uh, ending up being batteries for machines. Obviously that's like science fiction and out there, but at the same time, I hope we're, we're not just like totally inundated by advertising too, right? Like you wake up one day and you're like, huh, I just feel this like immense thirst for Bud Light. Let me go get some Bud Light. I wonder what happened there. Like, so that's how I think about these technologies. It's, it's about how we wield them on as like, as users of the technology and then how like product builders and platforms that, and even governments that are increasingly going to have a, a crucial role to play in this, like set the right incentives in place for the ecosystem. All right. So you, you mentioned like jacked in the matrix and I have to ask you now, uh, brain machine interfaces. So, you know, today we have technology that you can control computers with a, there's a wristband that control labs, uh, they created it and you can control with your thoughts, you know, a small game and, and your mouse and whatnot. It was purchased by a meta back a few years back. Uh, you can paralyze people, have the ability to restore some uh, movement again. Blind people can actually have some, not vision restored, but it's like they can see outlines and stuff. So they can see, you know, it's all kind of black and dark, but they can still see outlines. Mm -hmm. So they can partial restored vision. You can activate your taste of sense, or sorry, your, your, your sense of taste. You can do all these things, you know, smell, obviously, of course. These things are all possible today. Mainly they're being used on people that have, you know, disabilities or some sort of, or in some sort of accidents to restore those functions. But it's all doable right now, right? It's, this is not like sci-fi. This is like today. And so you extrapolate that out. And with, you know, you have kernel, you have, you have uh, Neuralink, et cetera. I'm more excited about like non-invasive BMIs versus like invasive. Invasive kind of, it's like very scary. Where do you think that we're headed on that front? Like, I just can't imagine that, you know, if you could, you know, put on your non-invasive BMI and go hike, you know, you know, climb Mount Everest from the comfort of your office and you actually, your brain actually thinks it's there and you're, you know, experiencing the wind and the smell or whatever, you know, you, you experience that. I, I can't imagine that we're not going to go there. I, I know this is like getting really sci-fi, but I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a it's a great question. I, I'll be I'll put it the complete speculation hat on for this one. Like, uh, you know, and I think it's not just sci fi. I think it's also like it's been in these like spiritual and esoteric, you know, uh, traditions that have been around for thousands of years, too. Right. Like uh, the concept of Maya and Prakriti in 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 Vedic philosophy, for example, South Asian philosophy. Um, or, you know, Elon pontificates about this too. It's like, are we in the base layer of the simulation? You know, given that we can layer these capabilities as you're alluding to, 
to, to, you know, sort of replicate everything we have as this like sort of sensory experience, you know, let's say there's something like consciousness. And then we are in this like neat bag that's sort of like our sensing apparatus and we're engaging with the environment around us. We really don't know like what is outside of our body. We have no, even from a reductionist science perspective, we have no way of knowing what is outside of us with, unless we can slice dice and do repeatable experiments around it, right? And then you throw in stuff like quantum and we're just like grasping at straws and string theory and it just goes off the rails, even in like, you know, uh, the scientific community. So in those situations, I just go back to like, what have like ancient traditions been saying about this stuff too? And it mirrors a lot of that. Matrix, of course, was inspired a bunch of by, by a bunch of that philosophy and stuff like that too, right? So where, where do I think we're going with BCIs? Like on one hand, they're a really intuitive way of interfacing with technology. I mean... I don't think the be all and end all of spatial computing devices is taking a fricking screen and putting it like a couple of inches away from our eyeballs. That seems kind of lame. And of course, you've got all these like, you know, light field displays and all that type of stuff. And you're projecting photons into your eyes that can maybe make sense. But then you go to the multi-sensory aspect, right? Like a lot of the ways we make memories is like and the way we tether ourselves to experiences in the real world is, is multi-sensory in nature, right? And so... I think it's interesting to think about the fact that we can dream. Some people can lucid dream and control that stuff. You've got like, you know, shamans and gurus that are able to like really control things like parasympathetic functions that we think are not controllable, but you can control them. So it wouldn't surprise me that we come up with technology that can kind of do that in a more predictable way. Like, why do you need Unreal Engine when our mind has like Unreal Engine plus plus running and, you know, creating photorealistic dreams that are like, often indistinguishable from reality. And and how do you figure out you're in a dream? Well, you know, you look at your phone and the text looks garbled up. And so funnily enough, there's like this interesting, weird, unscientific analogy to like the current state of diffusion models where like text and all this stuff looks kind of wrangly. But you can still, just from this amalgamation of sensor input, you can conjure a pretty realistic world. So I think these more intuitive forms of perhaps, you know, leaning into computing capabilities that we have in our brain to, you know, create more predictable and controlled experiences is super exciting. I'm sure that's a direction we go in. And I, like you, am equally stoked on non-invasive procedures to to go about doing that. Yeah, it's just like a higher bandwidth way of interfacing with technology, right? So I think that's an inevitability. Again, I'd give the caveat of like, immense upside, immense downside. Oh, yeah, like, do you really want you know, uh, your your thoughts being indexed and centralized, even at the edge, you know, uh, what's going to what, what are we going to do with that data? There's clearly some really uh, dystopian monetization opportunities there, but also very utopian applications, which is why you see, you know, people who have uh, sensory impairments being the first in line to benefit from this technology. Totally. OK, I'm going to bring it a little bit, you know, back to less sci fi, even though it's still pretty magical. But all right. So so what is the future of entertainment look like just because I feel like, you know, we have, we have mid journey, we have stable diffusion. We have, we have all these different tools now where people are creating incredible art and, and, you know, stories and, you know, text and, and, uh, audio and, and video is, is not quite there yet. I mean, I've seen some like very early demos and they're like pretty janky, but also like, you know, mid journey one was like, you know, a little bit janky like that. Now it's absolutely incredible. It's been what, two years or maybe less, I forget, but less, less. Yeah. So, so yeah, like what is entertainment going to look like with these tools coming out where you can literally generate a insanely cool scene, movie, story, whatever instantly? 
This is the trillion dollar question, I think, and a lot of people are going to figure it out. I'll answer this in a couple ways. The first is to say that what I know is going to happen. The traditional studio model, it's donezo. When you say traditional studio, can you describe that? Like, what is that? Yes. So th this trend that we're currently on, I would say we're in the we're in the middle of the trend, which is thus far how entertainment has been made is you know, a small number of studios create one size fits all content, right? Like small number of studios were able to centralize around this like patch of land called Hollywood. They were about able to raise money, you know, be this sort of gravity well for talent, whatnot, and end up creating movies that are designed for mass appeal, right? Sure, you've got like the tentpole productions and like, you know, then the scary movie, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight kind of franchise going on too. But essentially it's content that's designed to be one size fits all. I think YouTube was the next step on that trajectory which said, all right, now we'll have like, not everyone's a creator and creation still takes effort. We're going to have like 1% of our total users are actually going to materially create content and they'll come up with stuff that would never get greenlit by, you know, studio, uh, by like the, the formal studio world. And so like, you, you know, uh, that was awesome. So we saw like an explosion of content formats, creators that we never thought we'd see. Mr. Beast perhaps being like, you know, an exemplification of that. So already we're from a world where like people knew Tom Cruise, the guy, the Himothy, as Gen Z likes to say. And now it's like Mr. Beast. And what is Mr. Beast? He's like the exemplification of what you can do on YouTube. You can build content. He's got a chocolate brand. He's got doing like cloud kitchens on and on and on, right? Frickin' you've got, uh, you know, uh, Logan Paul and KSI. Hey, we've got reach across geographies. Let's aggregate that stuff. And, you know, essentially go take on PepsiCo and Gatorade. So you're already at a world where like the Tom Cruises of the world historically never, that were essentially a product, a byproduct of the studio model that I just described. We're now transforming to this like sort of creator, business entrepreneur, creatorpreneur model where, you know, they're in charge of their own content. They're building their own audiences and then they're creating products and services around that. Enter the TikTok era further democratized. Okay, so it's not just 1% of people that are creating content, 30, 40, 50% of the user base of TikTok and now YouTube Reel or YouTube Shorts and Instagram Reels are able to create. Because the barrier to creation keeps going lower and lower, right? Like you don't need like Premiere and freaking, we were talking about DSLRs before this and SD cards and all this crap. I just use my phone. It's like studio in a box, studio in my pocket. I can do cool stuff with it. So that's creating another you know, the Addison Rays, like another like sort of like the Sway Houses, like another line of content creators are emerging. I think AI is like, can it just make all that stuff look like a freaking footnote? So I think we're on the precipice of like massive disruption where you can totally have one size fits all content to now more and more personalized content. And even the feed model, that was the big change too, right? Like instead of this like social graph based discovery mechanism, now it's interest graph race, right? Like Netflix has perhaps been doing this in their own intuitive way. You know, we've got this library of content. They're using analytics from their audience that's watching the content to figure out what to make. It's no longer this like, you know, kind of old school, let's go focus group, what we're going to do. And, but, you know, I really believe in so-and-so actor. Let's push this actor. It's far more data oriented. The thumbnails to get you to click on stuff change based on your preferences and then YouTube and TikTok is that on steroids, perhaps on the more like totally democratized end. When I think about AI in the context of all of this, I don't think that trend of personalization is going to go away. Now, what's hard to predict, this is maybe what I'll end on, is how personalized is it going to be? 
is there going to be this like innate nature in us as humans? Like from since time immemorial, we sit around the fire and we tell each other these stories. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, spiritual traditions, whether it's like the Abrahamic or Vedic traditions or the Eastern tradi traditions, the themes remain the same, right? So the, the hero's journey, as people call it, there is this like sort of need in us to like encode sort of almost like generational knowledge, which, which almost points to one size fits all kind of narratives. Maybe they get like, sort of tailored to specific context or whatnot. So I ask myself, are we going to have like tentpole productions, like the Marvel Cinematic Universes of the world? Or are we going to have just like, it's not even like, it's just like the TikTok feed making content for you, Andrew, at the edge to your needs and based on your freaking biometric feedback and like, you know, you know, you talk about Mr. Beast retention editing. Now you're doing retention editing at the edge to keep you engaged. So it's like, this spectrum of tentpole content, one size fits all to totally disposable content that's made for the context need moments at hand. Is it going to be all of the above? Probably. I think realistically it'll be sort of a portfolio, but that's sort of how I think about the future of entertainment. Some interesting things there that can happen in terms of use cases to make it more concrete, perhaps in the near term would be, you know, I convinced in about a year's time, you'll be watching Netflix and like, you know, like you and your partner could be like, I want to see myself like, like we're going to be in this movie, pay like fourteen ninety nine, and you sort of like reskin yourselves to be sort of the leading roles. To take that a step further, like what are movies that would never get made? Are creators going to be wielding this, or is it going to be like you know, like maybe me sitting down with my family and saying, "Hey, I want to watch Spider Man set in Mumbai, directed by J.J. Abrams," and you can just like conjure up the movie on demand. Uh, down to the TikTok feed example that I gave you in the long term, which could get really dystopian too. So that's how I think about the future of entertainment. Um, I think there's many interesting manifestations and directions it could go. And I think it'll apply across modalities from audio, obviously, to like, you know, kind of consumption content like books and, and blogs, uh, you know, down to obviously photo, video, 3D interactive experiences. It's just a mind boggling kind of future we have, you know, coming. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's like- and Apologies, that was us. a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, it was it was insane and incredible. So I, I guess like in that future, will human creators still be relevant? Because if I can just copy paste you and make an AI generated you and have, the, you know, the, the, the content be something similar to what you'd say and maybe what you believe, then it's like, First of all, yeah, what wh happens to the people creators? And then number two is, does it concern you that this world that we're heading towards is like personalized? Because sure, like TikTok is showing me what I like and I, and I, and I like it, I enjoy it obviously, but maybe they're gonna start serving me some content that um, I don't necessarily enjoy, but they're like, hey, I wanna just kind of sway Andrew a little bit. I wanna try, try to say, hey, you know, I don't know, plastic water bottles or whatever are like bad for you, right? Like buy, buy this metal one or who knows what. Um, right, right. So, yeah. Well, what are, what are your thoughts on like human humans in this future as creators, and then uh, creators, entertainers, mm -hmm. and then the, the personalization? I think they're both really good questions. Um, I think the human creator one is is a choice we have to make as an industry, both creators and consumers and advertisers. I think we all have to make this decision. I think there is totally a dystopian future where like content creators are basically providing reinforcement learning to like replace themselves. So just like I always found it a little heart wrenching when I'd see like an Uber or Lyft driver and they had like a, you know, a little, little uh, smartphone running up there being like, Oh yeah, you know, Uber just pays me to like, you know, record my stuff. They're using it for their self-driving thing. And I'm like, yo, yo, 
you're literally like subsidizing the thing that's going to replace you. And I think in a similar fashion as like, especially these new generation of tools pop up, I don't think Adobe would be, Adobe is too entrenched in like caring about the creator to do this. But I think other creation tool companies that are completely cloud-based could totally start mining insights from content creators that use their tools in the near term to make original content and then replace them completely. And of course, to your point, the deep fakes thing, like the virtual influencers, the little Michaela's on steroids, the virtual YouTuber thing in, in Japan, which has been a massive trend since like 2016 on steroids too, could like go in a very dystopian direction, right? Like why deal with the Jared subway incident, you know, when you could just have like a literally an influencer, you could puppeteer to your heart's content. I could see brands and businesses salivating over that. I could see even Hollywood execs salivating over that, right? Like, you know, Hollywood loves to make little like, uh, you know, not everyone so I should be, but, but the trope is Hollywood loves to make like little statues and, you know, like little trophies out of uh, talent, right? Oh, now you don't even have to worry about it. You can make as many trophies on demand. Oh, you want to bring like, you know, Ma Marilyn Monroe back from the dead. Awesome. Do it. Bruce Willis just digitized his own likeness, right? Like, is it, it's, it's going to become harder for him to make movies. Maybe we could see Die Hard 15 or whatever. So I think like that's a decision we need to make where we make sure that the creator is at the heart of this experience. And the reason I say that is like self-expression, creative self-expression of that is such a like key part of us as humans that it would be a shame to outsource that completely. On the other hand, I believe far more in this like co-pilot creation experience, like the the amplification of it, if you will, you know, let's keep the creators at the center because there is some like X factor in us. Yes. That's hard to just replicate with large statistical models. Maybe we'll get there. You know, I don't know, but still, I think there's some X factor in, in good taste and the sort of like the artists, the heart and soul of the artist, if you will. It's a very like, you know, kind of a uh, soft, mushy topic, but you know, I, I think that's a decision all this to say, don't you think market forces will compel compel everyone to utilize these tools versus I agree with you. Like I, I think, you know, I, I, I would love a future where humans are still creating content and inter interacting and whatnot. But I'm just like, man, markets are like the most powerful forces in the world. And if you can save, you know, mm. millions and billions of dollars perhaps by utilizing AI instead of people to create content, then it's like that's probably what's gonna end up happening. I think maybe there's a timeline that that absolutely happens and, and the profits are just too hard to ignore. Why pay? We're already seeing this trend where like, you know, creators like me, brands love us because, Hey, why should I pay an agency that comes up with a fricking slide deck and a bunch of crap? Again, no offense to the agency world. Why would a brand work with an agency that brings like all this overhead to the party with slide decks? And I got a producer and like, you know, creative director. Whereas like, Hey, we'll give you the content and we bring an audience to the, audience to to the party right you you take that to the extreme and you could have like mcns of just like completely virtual influencers that could like programmatically be bidded for at like you know you know you can optimize the crap out of this sort of marketplace and yeah like i think the financial upside of that is going to be immense and maybe that is going to be sort of like this dystopian black mirror ready player one type future i still think the countervailing influence to all of that is mediums themselves are not going to remain static. What I mean by that is right now, like a lot of backlash you see from artists, which by the way, I have a hard time, like I empathize with it, but I, I, I like kind of want them to see things my way. Cause like I grew up learning these like esoteric tools, spending decades learning this crap, like reading thick books with a freaking CD ROMs at the end of it. But I don't view it as like, 
oh crap, my craft is gone and replaced. And I think the, the negative response happens when you think of it in zero sums in terms of the mediums. I think humans are always very good at conjuring up the next more complex medium that we couldn't possibly have created for if not for these automation capabilities, these acceleration capabilities. And maybe to our initial conversation, that's the metaverse, right? Like, and so if we want to create compelling content in the metaverse, you still need like a human in the loop, right? Maybe that's the version of like Neo in the most recent Matrix, right? Where he's like this game designer, like savant kind of game designer. I think maybe we'll see something like that where like you'll still need the James Camerons of the world, like sort of these visionaries who can almost like, you know, the Beethovens of the world to use an old example that can sort of orchestrate a vast amount of like automated agents that help you conjure up content for this far more complex medium. And I think like people get bored of mediums easily, like even podcasts sort of reinvented radio, if you will. And so like once that reinvention happens, you'll kind of want that X factor, the thing that like makes you feel like you're alive. And so I think that's the countervailing influence. And again, like most things, maybe those worlds will live, live in parallel, right? Like, could this end up in a place where most things are mass produced consumer product goods that are boxed and, you know, uh, you know, sit on shelves for a long time, but also you have Whole Foods and everyone wants to go buy organic. So that's, that's kind of how I think about how the economics may play out. I, I sure hope it's like a hybrid. Certainly, I, I think, uh, the, you know, I, I'm not as naive to think it'll be this like solar punk utopia either. It never is. Someone uh, recently told me, because I was saying, I, I was like, I don't know how people are going you know, to compete in, in this world. And someone was like, well, you know, there's always there's always the market for the hand, your Whole Foods example, always the market for like the handcrafted, human made, um, you know, you know, they, they, they took their time and they put their love and energy into whatever that is. Like, I mean, yeah. Japan's a great example. They have always incredible, whether it be like a dish or whether it be like handmade sea salt or like, you know, the what is it? The uh, Wagyu, you know, you know, they massage oh, yeah. cows and whatever, like, so there'll always be a market for that. And yeah, I, I guess I'm proving my own point wrong, but I, I, you know, I just want to ask you to, to, to hear your, hear your thoughts. Yeah. The other question you had was personalization. Is that Pers right? Yeah. Personalization. Yeah. I think the personalization one kind of feeds into this point, right? Like the sort of autonomous influencer agents paid for by the highest corporate entity to influence people in the wild is, is, is one extreme of that personalization. Again, like, I don't think algorithms and machines are inherently good or evil. I legitimately think it's like nuclear. And I say nuclear because I think the stakes are as high as nuclear. It's just like, you know, there's the overt explosion and the ramifications of that. Here, it's not as overt, but it's certainly the, the, the shockwave permeates through us as humans in, in, and has leaves as much of a devastating outcome, right? Like, even in the Instagram era, like people talk about like the social media, the social graph era, you know, that was kind of personalization. And people talked about, you know, like what is, uh, again, going back to like spiritual traditions, you know, like every it, religion or spiritual faith talks about envy. Well, how do you like induce envy in people? Yeah, just show them everything your neighbor has or your friend's friend has or that influencer you don't kind of know, but you're still like, oh my God, this person has a freaking boat. Like I'm out here with my Beamer three series. This is so lame. And so like this ability to peer into the glass house, a perfectly curated glass house of everyone else, I think wasn't good for mental health, especially of the younger generation. That's the thing I worry about the most, not to sound like a boomer millennial, but like, I'm so glad I remember life before like technology and I could go out biking with my friends and like my parents had no way to reach me and stuff like that. And so I think like even the 
social graph based personalization, like the era that I kind of grew up with and that you kind of grew up with had its downsides. Similarly, the interest based graph had its pros and cons, right? Like on the plus side, it connected you to your friends. And like, I was able to connect with long lost friends from India, from the UK, from like stay in touch, go played like call of duty with all my homies from Portland. It was wild. Like all the good stuff too. Some of the thing with interest based graph, like all the TikTok feed, if you will, that's where I think it gets a little bit more insidious to your, I think, which is the heart of your question or can, when you alluded to like, can you ever so slightly like push the scale in the favor of like getting Andrew to get paranoid about plastics and BPA or whatever and buy the, I don't know, the perfect bronze insert, you know, it's that thing Kong in water, like the MLM where everyone's like, yeah, ionized water is the thing you just need. Every, you know, this, this social media gets co-opted by forces to do that. And certainly it could be when you're sort of outsourcing your, your faculties or your internal discriminator for what content you want to see to an algorithm. I think it can again be good or bad. So YouTube, I kind of love YouTube because I choose what to click on next. It's not this like, let me give you that Mountain Dew straight to the vein type experience. Now, TikTok is addictive. I love it. You know. I have it on a separate burner phone now, which I don't know what that tells you about me, but like, you know, it's, it's equally addictive. And now you have those same algorithms in YouTube and, you know, Instagram and all that. And so I think I can't do that for more than like 30 minutes without just feeling like my brain is fried. And when you outsource your like discriminator to a feed, I think you're far more susceptible for whether that's a nation state, whether that's a large corporate entity or a bunch of like the highest paying bidder that's using advertising platforms to reach you to subtly influence you. And so add in like freaking eye gaze detection, like, and all this other stuff. I mean, I've got a quest two here or a quest pro here, barely used it, but you know, it's a product manager. I noticed the in-app consent I had to click on for meta to like, just use eye tracking. And you take that on steroids and like Meta, I think is like, you know, it's a company that's in good and bad stuff, just like every other company, but there may be like even less, you know, discriminating uh, companies out there that may be willing to do all sorts of crazy stuff with that type of biometric feedback loop that you end up creating that'll make these algorithms better. And at some point they know you better than you know yourself. And so good and bad outcomes there. I think personalization isn't going to go away. It's the question of like, can we almost like, and this is maybe perhaps at the heart of this like AI debate that's happening, like where the Gary Marcuses of the world are saying, hey, yo, 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 let's pump the rigs, homie. Like this is getting a little crazy. Let's not just deploy this out in the wild because even without all this like super powerful generative stuff, just like, you know, the first iteration of ML-based systems that are really good or even like classical AI systems that we're really good at targeting have been used to both prop up small to medium enterprises and at the same time been used to like, you know, influence democratic elections. I think both can happen and Gen AI is going to be that on steroids. All right. So what are your thoughts on, and not to like, you know, harp on like bad things, because the personalization thing that kind of scares me, uh, just because I'm thinking about, I'm always thinking about edge and advantage, just because obviously, mm. like, you know, we invest in this space and invest in the metaverse. And I'm thinking about uh, who has an advantage in a world where things can be generated so quickly and easily, like nearly for free. And then on the personalization front, I'm like, man, well, if you're not like in coots with the algo or really understand the algo, then maybe people won't even be able to see your content. Therefore, how do you, how do you get that advantage? Uh, versus like you mentioned YouTube, like, Hey, if I'm a fan of, I don't know, Roman history, I can type in Roman history, look at all the videos and I click that. 
when I'm on reels, I'm just kind of like swiping and, you know, maybe it'll show Roman history. Maybe it won't. So yeah, I, I guess like, how do you think about advantage or edge in, in a world where AI can generate things for nearly free and we have personalization? Actually, let, let's just, let's just do the AI nearly free. Cause I think personalization is separate. It is, it is also another trillion dollar questions, right? Like, uh, I have a buddy who's in this past batch of YC doing an AI startup. And uh, he was talking about how vast majority of companies are essentially wrappers around open AI stuff, right? And, you know, they're building all this stuff around GPT-3, GPT-4 comes out and takes a bunch of like, you know, the capabilities that they were building around GPT-3 and makes it a part of like the foundational model, right? Like, I think the example that went the most viral online was essentially the myriad of startups that were doing, hey, provide me a mock-up or a 2D sketch, I think, as you alluded to, and then, hey, you get out like, you know, real code. Here's a web app. Here's a native app. Boom, done. I think I think it's a really interesting question. No one really knows. I think there's some intuition that like there's one, you know, perhaps again, I like to think in extremes. There's one extreme, which is like, hey, if you don't make money in the next two years, you're absolutely screwed. Like, that's it. Like you, this is. They're 16 to 24 months. Go out there, figure something out, build a, a boat. First off, get on a boat, right? Like they say, rising, uh, rising tides lift all boats. So first off, don't drown, get on a goddamn boat. Now, whether that's a tanker ship, like these massive foundational models or a bunch of these pirate ships that are constantly going to have a pivot party every two to three months or like a speedboat, you know, or like a cruise boat, like, you know, open AI perhaps that's like aligning itself with a bigger tanker. I don't know what the answer is. I do know that like there's something interesting about this like notion of reinforcement learning from human feedback. So like, what is Midjourney doing? Like, okay, you've got stable diffusion, super open, all the things, the weights are out there, go do stuff. And then you've got like Dali, Imogen party, like the proprietary side of the house. Midjourney's managed to strike this nice balance because they opened their tech up. They got a bunch of people on Discord using it. And the current conviction seems to be in like the AI academic community. There was a really, really good uh, tweet thread on this by Jim from NVIDIA, Jim Fan, research scientist there, which is like, the signal for which images Midjourney users were upscaling, like, you know how it generates four images and you can upscale one, gave them a cue on what was like a good aesthetically pleasing image. And they used that as a feedback loop to make their model better and better and better. So I think there's something very interesting there where like, you know, there's this like pre massive pre-training step and then this like fine tuning process, you know, or just like, let's just call it like this process of refining and improving this model, you know, so you could build a moat around having a compelling product user experience where you have an engaged audience or an engaged user base that's helping you solve this like user specific problem. So I think like what it comes down to is like foundational models aren't going to care about all the things unless like freaking GPT-5 just solves everything for you. Then like RIP, we're all just like, you know, we're turned to paper clips or something. So I don't think that's going to happen. So the place I retreat to on the other end is like, just put on your product management hat, like your product builder hat, and just like solve fucking problems. Sorry, solve freaking problems, you know, like so forget the hype, forget the AI startup thing, like find a domain that's interesting where there's like a TAM, where there's like a clear ROI and go solve those problems for them. You saw a lot of companies in, in AR, VR that actually made money, did really boring things like, Freaking, you know, uh, stock picking inside warehouses, you know, uh, in context, medical assistance, some of the stuff even I worked on back in like my consulting days with Deloitte, like a field service expert on an oil rig with a Google glass going through a maintenance checklist. You don't need the metaverse to 
help this person be hands-free and like main, like, you know, go through something for compliance or safety reasons or give them intelligence at the edge to solve problems. I think like the creator part that you alluded to is also interesting regarding the feed. It's like, and I think maybe that's the part where there's a clearer answer in my opinion, which is like, you know, Tim Ferriss says this, everyone says this, like build your goddamn mailing list. There's a reason people say that, right? Like algorithms at their best are supposed to be reflections of user preferences, but we know there are other forces at play, right? Like people are talking about TikTok now and a bunch of people are like, oh my God, like is the CCP just oh so subtly putting the scale in favor of like, you know, putting out disinfo and like, oh, the, you know, of course the interesting thing there is like, you know, this content is being ostensibly made by Americans or like, you know, Western users and you just like slightly amplify it. And then you throw in synthetic data and misinformation. Oh my God, I, I could just like <laughs> go get depressed about that. But to bring it back, like in this like world where, you know, personalization trend is going to continue. And I think like algorithms are going to get better at t- showing you what you want. I think people are going to sort of build their own islands of influence, so to speak. Right. And that's their mailing list today. And, you know, this may be of interesting to you, given your investing background. I think like Kajabi is doing some version of making that island more interesting. So it's not just like a Substack newsletter. It's like, hey, here's this island that you build that you own. Like people know you for it. Like not just Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday, but like you want digital products, you want a community in there, a podcast is integrated into that. So I think like as the incremental cost of creating these type of software experiences go to zero, I think you're going to see more and more creators sort of build their like mini verses. I don't know what the right word is, but like they're sort of islands of influence in this like gigantic metaverse. And yeah, people are going to still want to go to the club, go to Times Square, go to like these public squares where you find new stuff. But hey, like when you're chilling on your Saturday morning, like, you know, walk, which is when I listen to podcasts, I go directly to the people that I like whose voice and like thoughts I care about, right? Like, or, you know, everyone loves to read inside of the newspaper, which is a sort of an aggregator, their Substack blogs that they like. So I think that trend will continue. And the sophistication with which we can kind of engage in these like smaller islands of influence, maybe Mr. Beast is going to be massive. I don't know is going to be awesome. And that's how like creators will sort of safeguard themselves from, you know, being purely at the mercy of the in quotes algorithm. Awesome. Okay. So I want to move a little bit over to a lot of the content you create, especially on Twitter. And it's a lot of like spatial 3d, what we say, like bringing the internet to life, bringing the metaverse to life. Why don't you tell me about that? You know, the 3d skinning of environments, nerfs. Uh, I've heard, I've heard that term and seen that term everywhere. I don't know what it means. So just tell me all about like, you know, what's, what's compelling you to create this awesome content and, and how do you do it? And, and, and like, what is it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think all the technologies you're listing are going to sort of merge together in this sort of Voltron. That's going to be really interesting for both like how you can make classical content and then just sort of what content turns into. What, what motivates me is like, honestly, I'll go back to my theme. Like I, I've, since I was a kid, I've been obsessed with, you know, blending the physical and digital world. Like I remember watching, like I was watching like Discovery Kids as a kid, like oh God, TV. And, uh, you know, there, there was a show called Mega Movie Magic. And I think they had like this episode on freaking Independence Day. You've probably seen Independence Day. It's like, you know, this scene where like the freaking mothership comes down and blows up, you know, Th- there's something more compelling to me about that than like the Pixar style stylized animation, just for me as, as a creator and like a product builder or whatever. And that's because it's like this way of blending 
you know, the digital and physical world, or like, you know, maybe the, the playful version of that is again, reality and imagination. So all these technologies, photogrammetry, neural radiance fields, which is sort of a new way of doing in quotes, reality capture. And, you know, now generative AI, which becomes this way to sort of reskin the real world that you capture almost to the extent where we can now like kit bash reality. Like, um, you know, kit bashing is like, sort of uh, something that got started even back in the Star Wars days, like some back in the day when like, you know, in the first Star Wars where people are doing like physical motion control. So again, all the stuff we do in Mayan Blender today, they had like freaking robots and like these robots that could do repeatable motions. So you could take like all these like, you know, people, how they build scale models of stuff. They go find all these parts and then they just kit bash that stuff together to give like the Millennium Falcon, all this added detail, right? You just find all these parts off like GI Joes and like Hot Wheels and whatnot. And you just kind of like mash them all together. You know, artists have been doing that in the 3D world too. But what's still been hard for us to do has been digitizing reality. This is like, man, like think about 2011. 2011, companies like Apple and Google, massive teams, computer vision experts, massive data centers were required to digitize reality. And so that's like how you got Google Earth. And initially it was 2D and eventually you could start tilting it and do 3D. And like, you know, it's been, I would say the adventure of a lifetime for me to work on the remapping the world using all these crazy sensors. But one of the reasons even us at Google, we were able to remap the world easily is because all this technology also democratized drastically. And so what that meant for bigger players like Google is like, we could do it at a fidelity that was never seen before. Like, let's literally take like a decade worth of street view. Let's take a decade worth of aerial imagery and satellite imagery, go collect a bunch of new data at some like remarkable precision. By the way, mind freaking blowing to just be like, hey, we need to go collect these cities. Can we just like fly some planes and like, oh yeah, can we send some cars with LiDAR and like 150 megapixel sensors and capture this stuff? And we can do that and create this like next-gen digital twin. That's what you see in products like Immersive View. But on the other hand of that is also like, how do you keep this model up to date, right? Like it's like, you can, you can remap the world once every couple of years. Maybe you do the major cities once a year, but this democratization also happened, right? So like everyone's been talking about 3D scanning. This sort of started with photogrammetry circa like 2013, 2014 is really when it started becoming more commodity as like CPUs got faster. You got multi-threading and of course GPUs, right? Like that changed things. So if you remember the first battlefront, that was like a great example of like Star Wars battlefront. These artists like went out to the forest, their parking lot. They started using like, you know, again, like sensors got more sophisticated too. Like, you know, these full frame cameras we're talking about, they're going to literally capture 50 megapixel imagery. Let's go capture a bunch of images. And then we can use algorithms to stitch that together into this 3D model. And neural radiance fields are just a more sophisticated way of doing that. That keeps like the material properties, the vibe of the space and place intact. We can get into the differences if you want, but the meta point is like, you know, reality capture got democratized because sensors got better, compute got cheaper. So now you've got like AAA game titles that are like, hey, rather than us having artists build all this crap from scratch, let's go kit bash reality. Let's go capture stuff and like mash that stuff to together. And you see amazing artists doing stuff like, you know, in Blender and using reality capture tools to like do the same thing on like an indie budget. And that's really where I got excited too, where my day job was like, yes, let's go use these like massive structured sensor systems, sensor systems, and, you know, data center based approaches to remap the world and do awesome things. Call that sort of the substrate. But then that has to be anchored with all this interesting content. Some of it's going to be factual. 
you know, the Matterport realtor tours that got drastically democratized, right? From like street view panos to actual like these 3D ish experiences. And now we're seeing like with ne- neural radiance fields, the next sort of like more immersive iteration of that. And so to me, it's like, you know, a yet another amazing primitive in the creation toolkit where you can digitize reality, you can use it for utilitarian purposes, or the stuff I've been exploring that you've probably seen on my Twitter is like, yo, I want to reskin reality to look like Minecraft. Actually, I want to channel surf on top of reality. Or, hey, I digitized like my parents' house because they were moving to another place. And like, gosh, we've got so many memories there. Let me just use my like Sony camera and capture it. And then now I can like reskin this place. And so all the like interior design, you know, uh, applications, if you're like building out a new podcast studio and you want ideas to do that, you can do anything from take a single photo to a bunch of photos to a dense amount of photos and get varying levels of ability to a model that space and then reskin it. And again, back to utilian tight, like you could even provide that space digitized you know, to your like, you know, contractor that's going to go redo the place for you. So it can help you across the value chain of creation, whether that's ideation, whether that's like actual, like, you know, creation of the content itself. And then like, you know, kind of how you might go and like create experiences in that place itself, right? Like, let me just create like GTA 15 set in like my hometown, like a kid with a drone and like, Reality capture and Unreal Engine can go do that already. And people are, right? Like people are using Minecraft and Google Earth to like reinvent like their city inside these worlds. And so generative AI is going to take that stuff to the next level. So th- that all sounds freaking awesome. But I, but from a, I'm thinking about it like in, in, in a business lens, like th- there's been so much progress, right? And I'm like, okay, well, there's been so much progress. So there must be a big business use case. So there must be a lot of money in doing that. But it sounds like, it sounds like there is money involved, but you know, the real estate example of seeing the interiors and whatnot and uh, a few other, few other use cases, but the amount of progress to me seems like, okay, there must be like billions of dollars behind this, right? Is, is that the case or is it more like a, a fun, cool, exciting art artistic thing to do versus like, no, this is like, you can make a lot of money from this. I think, I, I think certainly the players that are making the most money from this are sort of centralized large players. That's where there have been the most obvious use case for this stuff, right? Like maps and a mapping platform, whether that's like first party to get you to your latte or navigate you through your commute or help you figure out which hotel you want to go to. There's obvious applications there. As a part of that value chain, there certainly is place for things like Matterport, but last I checked, their stock ain't doing too hot. Uh, On the other hand, I think it's like right now becoming only recently democratized, like ostensibly in the last couple of years, that it's become this primitive and people are figuring out how to compose it. You know, I've actually had a bunch of conversations like, you know, uh, VCs have reached out to me being like, Hey, I want to get your thoughts on all the nerf companies, like all the startups. You know, I would say Luma being perhaps the best just given their velocity, but you know, there are others out there too. And I wouldn't discount companies like Polycam. They're doing a great job. They built on Apple's API. So and I think like Apple kind of makes this point too. It's like, Apple has Apple Maps. They're clearly using reality capture tech to take that to the next level. They've got their next version of 3D Maps. Google has got their next version of 3D Maps. Microsoft is like also building it, but they're maybe putting in like freaking Microsoft Flight Simulator, but they didn't build it themselves. They work with this company, Black Shark, that's also thinking about how to monetize this. So I think the real money is right now going to the larger players just because of the scale and ubiquity with which they can operate and then connected to existing ecosystems of both search and discovery and advertising, right? Like, I think that's, that's the obvious angle. So these VCs ask me is like, you know, is, is Nerf going to be the next big thing? And what I say is like, 
I'm not convinced Nerf is like a, a business. It feels more like a feature to me. It's a feature that's a part of a bigger product experience, a bigger business ecosystem. And which one is going to be like the biggest one? I don't know. But if you and I believe, we go back to the start of our conversation where the metaverse is connecting the physical and digital world, this is one key piece of a, like a technology that connects those worlds. I think what we're missing is like, to give you an old school example. All right. So like location services and maps happen, right? Google came out with that stuff. And initially it was largely for free, right? Now over time, the price is raised and there's some controversy associated with that. But like, leave that aside, whether you use like OpenStreetMap or Google Maps or whatever, these mapping platforms are there and they make a good amount of money. But then you've got Uber that built like, like a ride sharing, taking those components of like mobile device, GPS sensors on your phone, internet connectivity, ubiquitous map of the world, at least the road networks and the points of interest in it. And then used all of that to create this like, you know, massive business out of it. I think we'll see the same thing happen. I'm not convinced it's as obvious as like digitize, you know, your, your, you know, real estate to start. So who knows what'll happen, but yeah, totally agree with you, uh, with your assessment there. Okay. So before diving deep into AI, I want to ask you, uh, want to clarify nerf means neural radiance field. That's exactly right. It's, um, Let's go, let's do a little primer on Earth if that's helpful. Yeah. If you want. Yeah. So think of reality capture in three big buckets. There's like visualization, there's analysis, and then there's like, like machine understanding or localization. Let's break those three buckets down. Visualization is like, I just want this like human readable 3D model of the world. Like this pretty model to look at that takes me there that's transportative, right? And so the techniques to do that have basically been like this thing called photogrammetry, which is the art and science of measuring the world using, you know, uh, imagery observations and other types of sensor data, for example, LIDAR. And what that gives you is this thing called, you know, like there are various data products it produces, but the most well-known one is like just a 3D mesh. Here's a triangulated mesh with textures on it. Now, the cool thing about texture 3D meshes is you've got like this entire ecosystem of like, you know, 3D engines and like, you know, whether that's gaming engines or like all the entertainment stuff like Maya and Max and all Blender we talked about, they understand, they know how to work with meshes. But the problem is reality is freaking complex, Andrew, right? Like things are shiny. There's like, you know, your hair is like very like, you know, complex, you know, you've got reflections, you've got refractions, all these like material properties that like really transport you and, and encapsulate what it means to be at a place is hard to represent with these like meshes. These meshes are very good at representing continuous surfaces, right? So think about OG GTA. It looks like this kind of boxy clunky thing. Same thing with all this other stuff. If you want to measure the world, you know, like what's the like height of this like doorway and like, you know, you know, do I have enough space in my kitchen to fit this appliance? Yes, you need photogrammetry. On the other hand, you've got this like art and science of something called view synthesis. The problem of view synthesis in computer vision is basically given a bag of images, how do I like basically uh, synthesize an intermediate viewpoint across these images? It's a similar thing where it's like, you know, I took a bunch of photos of my car, but now I want to synthesize intermediate viewpoints across these images. And I want to do that in a, in a manner that's like as close to the source imagery as possible. So like the glint and veneer of your car, like the glass, the reflection, the reflection, maybe you have like freaking explosions and volumetric effects. All of that stuff has sort of been bundled together 
you know, in colloquial terms, it's like light field cameras. Do you remember Lytro uh, a while back? There was this company no. called Lytro. They were trying to solve this like light field, uh, like this problem of light field where like instead of like explicitly modeling the world with like geometry and things like that, let's like try to model the panoptic function. Let's try to model the light, you know, uh, the light field, if you will, the photons that you're literally seeing from those various viewpoints. And gosh, like that turned out to be like a massive compute problem. You needed like these massive capture rigs. I actually worked on a bunch of this research on things called deep view, where again, you needed like instead of a massive like multi-million dollar rig, like circa 2019, we still needed like freaking like 30, 40, 50 GoPros in an array to go capture these data sets or a large amount of photos with more of these like deep, and we were using deep learning back then, like this is the early days of using like, you know, reverse gradient descent and things like that. But with NERFs, the real unlock has been, we can do this, like it's not technically a light field, but we can create this like volumetric representation that basically lets the task you ask the AI in very simple terms is like, here's a bag of images again, instead of figuring out where all the surfaces are and all this other crap we're doing photogrammetry, like, I just want you to like, spitball and eyeball ray tracing. I just want you to imagine you're ray tracing and I've given you some of these images and you're doing that and you're calculating the stuff out and it creates this volumetric representation that's like, you know, uh, modeling the input images like uh, by the weights of this like multi-layer perceptron to, to, to cut through all like the, the, the terminology, basically you're spitballing and eyeballing ray tracing and you're creating this like volumetric, you know, representation where as you change the camera view, the color value and opacity associated with every voxel, like in this like three-dimensional space changes. And so this is wild. Now you've got this like model, like this like trained model that is representing like a bag of images that you gave it. And the cool part is like, you don't need that many images. It's getting cheaper and cheaper to train. And that lets you do some amazing, amazing things such as modeling the complexity of reality, Again, all these startup founders are trying to figure out where the monetary use cases for them. Is it visual effects? Well, the VFX industry is sort of in a spiral. There's only a handful of customers for it. Is it real estate? Well, they've already got things like Matterport. Is it Matterport plus plus? But essentially this like light field-esque technology is far more commodity. And based on where things are going, these like you know, sort of like like models that you're giving it images to create representations. They're starting to have babies with these diffusion AI models that we've been talking about. And so like that is going to be amazing because one of the downsides of NERF, the plus side of a NERF is it encapsulates everything about the space, the background context, everything. If you look some of my NERFs, you can see all the background context. You lose that with photogrammetry. You only really get like, you know, uh, the places where you find, you know, consistent geometric structure that doesn't change. But I mean, like, you still have holes in the data, right? Like if you're trying to map everything in reality, you can't take all the photos. So you need like, even though nerfs degrade more gracefully than photogrammetry, meaning if photogrammetry goes around, so you get these like awkward blobby melty things. Like, you know, like if you look at trees in Google earth, we call them broccoli trees. They just look like these little plops of bro broccoli. It, it loses all the detail and nerf can start modeling that, but you still need something to fill in the holes. And that's where these diffusion models are going to like change the game as well. So that's a little bit about NERF. And it's just like this ML based approach to solve this like age old problem of reality capture. And, uh, you know, like many things like GANs were hot for a while and then diffusion models became hot. Now all the research in the academic world is about diffusion models and 
Some people are like, yo, maybe giga GANs. Let's go back to GANs and look at these other techniques. What you're seeing is same thing with Nerf. It's like the hot thing. So it's become both an intermediate representation for all the other perception research that's happening, but also, oh my God, like it's just wild. Like it took like just, just from my standpoint, like earlier last year, you had to play with these, like wrangle these collabs and take all these photos and it took like 12 hours to train a Nerf. And then NVIDIA came out with instant NGP and you can like freaking train that thing in a minute on your like consumer grade GPU. So just reality capture getting more and more democratized and Nerf is going to be a key player in all of that. Amazing. All right. So let's jump into AI. So is, are we headed towards a future where large language models, LLMs, will there be like, I don't know, four or five of these things, one from like OpenAI, one from Microsoft, one from Amazon, whatever, like, you know, these, these big tech companies. And they're like the infra or like the, the I don't know, the um, electricity, if you will, that, that everyone uses and builds things on top of, or like how will that play out? And are LLMs, is that like kind of the, this is going to sound silly, but like the, the, the max, I don't, I don't know the terminology, the max, like the max model that we can go to. If it's going to be some of this, like, you know, transformer based LLM, throw a bunch of data at it and you get these emergent properties approach. Um, you know, there's a holy war in AI happening right now, which is like, no, no, no. Like, yes, these models are in quotes, reasoning engines. And some people debate if it's a reasoning engine or not. Um, you know, uh, what we need is, is a, our AI systems that have a far more like, you know, hierarchically decomposed knowledge graph of the world. Like, you know, things about the world on a principled basis and you can build on that rather than sort of like, I don't know. I'm, I'm putting this very crudely, but like predicting the next token or the next word. Right. And, and sure. Crazy stuff has happened there. Right. Like, um, as you throw novel data sets at these, as these things and do it at massive scale, these systems are becoming approaching general purpose. So I don't know if it's going to be LLMs, like multimodal, some sort of hybrid thing. Like who knows? What I do know is that if I think about the path I would like to see, Again, like, I'm not going to talk about the left and right here. I'm just going to go in the middle and say, like, AGI is too much power for everyone to wield, in my opinion. I don't trust humans enough. I'll be honest with you. That's, like, way too much power, dude. Like, I do, th it's, it, it needs to be treated like nuclear. The AGI system, I don't think what we have is anywhere approaching AGI, which is most of the debate. Everything goes into, like, some AI scientists are saying, like, this is just, like, a stochastic dumb parrot and other people are saying we have to be careful and be prepared to like it's gonna it's a slippery slope to agi and we got to be ready to like freaking bomb data centers if need be to stop the rogue runaway ai i think like if we do achieve something on the cusp of agi assuming that is possible i think that even if systems that approach it can't be opened up undiscriminately so what i'd like to say is like i'm so happy that the weights for image generation models are opened i think synthetic media is a solvable problem we'll figure it out We'll figure out just like the way we figure out zero day exploits and freaking patching software vulnerabilities. But when it comes to multimodal systems like GPT-4 and that type of system, like every, every major company has them, Google, Meta, Amazon, all, Microsoft, all of them, right? Have these systems and maybe there are other systems that haven't even decloaked. Does the public sector have them? I don't know. I think that's a big debate. I always like to ask like the top AI researchers and they're always skeptical. They're like, nah, nah, nah. The private sector is far ahead, but they work in the private sector. I don't know. But what I do know is multimodal models should not be open source. I don't think GPT-4 should be open source. That's just like asking for trouble. You know, there are the simplistic examples of it solving a CAPTCHA for you. What is that? 
mean in terms of like abuse at massive scale. But if you got systems that can reason about different modalities, such as text, image, video, audio together, and can just do things at the edge, I, I, I think the abuse potential is just far too high. So where well, the future, I think that's going to happen is you're going to have these massive AGI systems that think of it like those, like, I haven't even seen the last season of freaking Westworld, but you know, like everyone's got the sci-fi interpretation of the massive like dome that's in some basement somewhere. Like, or, you know, t- 10,000 feet, but, but you know, like uh, in like a NORAD type style facility, impervious from like earthquakes and nuclear strikes. We'll have those systems and there'll be few and far in between. And then you will have a bunch of like personalized models everywhere. You know, I think even content may turn into something like that. Like right now we're creating output from these models and like as a video and I put it on Twitter or on YouTube or whatever. What does it mean when the content you engage with is a model in itself? I think like everyone's going to be making models. It's going to be like super democratic and all of that. But these like extremely powerful, like, you know, real like God tier, dare I say, use that God's word. Maybe that's not even in vain, but like these really powerful systems, you know, uh, I I think will be few and far in between. It'll be heavily, heavily regulated. And I think that's the only way it can happen because if you end up in this world where like everyone has access and we'll just figure it out, like even a small amount of bad actors, like, so what is the open source philosophy? When I talk to people who are like open source maximalist, (laughs) they will like to say stuff like, well, there's like the vast amount of people are good actors. And all we need is like enough good actors. And since everything's like out in the open, including the weights and the source code and like, you know, people can like keep the bad actors in check. Yeah, maybe over time, but if like the blast radius of the things, the harm that you can do is like immense, like, do you really want to unleash that fallout on the world? Like the example I'd like to give is like, people are talking about fake reviews. Yeah, maybe the big tech companies can go hire like an offshore team in like Hyderabad or like Philippines and like start hammering through the stuff and like, you know, uh, training discriminators. What are small to medium companies going to do? Like, we're just going to like, that's almost going to be even more in favor of this like centralized dystopia that open source maximalists would like to avoid. So where I think AI is going is some really powerful models that are centralized. And I, I don't think it's all going to be open AI. Maybe it will. I don't know. Like, but I think people underestimate the value of unique data sets, which a lot of these larger tech players and, you know, public sector entities do have access to like, on the other hand, you'll have a plurality, a blooming ecosystem of personalized models, some really big ones, and a bunch of really small ones that work at the edge. So that's the future I kind of see. And that's a lot like the world we have today, you know, it kind of ends up falling into that, at least in our timeline, falling into that configuration. So on the AI safety debate, your thought process is, hey, let's, let's have these companies that are creating these really powerful LLMs, quasi-AGIs, whatever you want to call them, have those be heavy, heavily regulated. How can you, so for something like nuclear, I, you know, that that is a physical, anything that's physical, it's much easier in my mind to regulate because it's like, hey, like you cannot import uranium or whatever, right? It's like, you know, it's like easier for, the, for them to control that. For something like software that, you know, and you know this better than everyone, but like software iterates at the pace of iteration there is just absolutely insane. So is it feasible to regulate AI or LLMs or, or, or any of this stuff. I just don't know how I feel like kind of cats out of the bag and, yeah. and it's going to be, it's like an arms race and everyone with a computer has access. It's like, how do you stop that? It's, I, I think this is going to be the debate of our time right now. 
in, and I think this is the debate that's playing out in the open. Gosh, I don't pretend to have answers here. I can, again, like paint two sides of the same argument and maybe you and your viewers and listeners can like come to your own conclusions. But I don't think even the smartest minds on the world have figured it out, right? Like, I don't think pausing indefinitely is an answer. Like, let's assume this is the space race, weapons race. And even though nuclear had like, yeah, shit, we can like blow ourselves to smithereens type outcome. I really didn't genuinely think multimodal AI systems, even far before they read anything resembling AGI or just like, it's like the power of a God, if not God, you know, uh, that, that can be wielded by somebody to good and bad outcomes. So I think you're right. Cats out of the bag. This is the challenge. Let me set up the challenge first. The challenge is there's a debate whether do you even need more than the public internet, right? Like, so Imad was like, took advantage of like, you know, uh, a crash in GPU prices after the crypto bust started happening and said, Hey, researchers, let's just like scrape images off the internet, lie on 5B, 5 billion images, 200, 300 terabytes. Let's distill that down into this like two gig, you know, or two and a half gig or whatever, a couple gigabyte checkpoint. Wow, that thing was like a pretty good representation, like was able, was very flexible to create a lot of visual output. Same debate with OpenAI, like, you know, Sam Altman's been quoted saying is like, yeah, you know, I mean, like the internet's a lot, like we can do a lot and then combine that with some specialized data sets, you're good. And then you've got like, you know, companies like Apple with their like sort of walled garden, Google with perhaps a more pseudo open approach. And then, you know, uh, Microsoft and Amazon somewhere in between, they've got their own like metaverses of digital twins about digital activity. And so there's a debate whether you need specialized data or just like open source data. So certainly cats out of the bag in the sense that like, if you can get compute, which, you know, you can get compute, you can just do it on AWS or heck, like build your own, like, you know, like mining machines. Like people have been building like amazing, like gaming grade hardware weave together to create supercomputers or crap. If you remember the early days of PlayStation, people are weaving PlayStation GPUs together to do that. And just take publicly scraped data, you can start creating some very sophisticated models. So cat's out of the bag there. How do you regulate that? That's the big question, right? All right. So yeah, you could go pontificate and whether that's like a more like, you know, public private sector hybrid approach that China takes with regulation where they're able to keep regulation in, in lockstep. Like they already is- issued synthetic media guidelines like six or seven months ago. And like, we're still like, oh, yeah, holy crap. Like we can create like Elon Musk almost punching, you know, freaking, you know, you know, insert MMA fighter of your choice, right? Like you can do things like that or the Trump prison memes that blew up or the the drippy, the drippy Pope memes, whatever. We're talking about that in a whimsical sense, but we haven't come up with like the policy and institutional framework. So and that's it. Maybe there's like benefit to sort of the you know, the China model. But the problem there is like the CCP is not going to want these models that can answer questions about Tiananmen Square and things like that, right? So like, how do you figure that out? Like, so you really have to regulate creation of these models on on, on, on the Western side of the house, like on a more democratic, you know, sort of liberal world. I think it's going to be even harder because if we are at a place where scraping the public internet is enough, where you can get compute, that's where you're seeing some of these calls for like, you know, uh, pretty prominent AI researchers saying, hey, we got to start tracking GPUs, just like the US government puts things on this like ITAR list, right? Like this, like, or this, like, this way of like, regulating very controlled hardware. And by the way, uh, ITAR 
certain types of LiDAR systems like remote sensing capabilities are on that list already. Like obviously the iPhone in our pocket isn't like anywhere near the fidelity where it's worrisome, but like, why was everyone freaking about this China balloon? Like, oh my God, you put a bunch of earth observation sensors and like, you know, like uh, sensors to sample, like just, you know, all the EMF that we're generating, like, and all the communications is happening. You can start building a pretty interesting digital twin of, of uh, you know, not just the physical world, but the digital, uh, you know, activities that are happening too. So that's worrisome. How do you regulate that? Yeah, I think there's a total dystopian world where the only way to regulate that is like, you got to have like device level surveillance on your freaking computer. So like nobody can write the runaway AI code that will go off and take over the world. And like who would implement that type of restriction? It would have to be at an OS level, right? Like certainly you could have the AWSs of the world do that on the cloud side, on the edge. It's going to have to be Apple, Microsoft, and like these big tech players that own the OSs, right? Where development is happening, which is largely on Linux, hard to control. Holy crap. What do you do then? So I think like this is going to be the debate of a lifetime and it needs to play out in the next six to 12, 24 months uh, so that we have some semblance of like a principled approach to think about how we're going to regulate AI. I do believe it needs to be regulated. I don't think we can leave it totally unregulated. It is like just too powerful. But to wrap things up, I'd say I think different types of AI capabilities need to be regulated differently. I'm not as worried about like content generation models as I am about multimodal models that can reason about all sorts of stuff and then do things at the edge and write disposable code. Like, oh my God, I don't think you we've even exhausted the full potential of like, you know, good and bad that you can do with those models. I see it as pretty futile. Like, you know, there's game three at play. So all all countries are aiming towards getting nuclear weapons in general, like like, like low key. Not, some of them are more um, open Over, than others, yeah. like North Korea, yeah. Iran, etc. Um, but everyone that that you know has nukes feels they're like, okay, cool, I, I'm good. And so you know, like people probably won't invade me. Hopefully not, right? And uh, <laughs> and so it's a huge incentive for other people to be like, okay, well, I want a nuke, just just you know, just as like my ultimate defense. And as I mentioned before, it's way easier to regulate physical goods and uranium and resources, totally. etc. And, and nuclear scientists, there's not that many, right? Compared to like software engineers and compared to computers and GPUs, there's like, I, I don't know, I'm making this number up, but let's say a million times more uh, computer scientists, um, GPUs and computers than there are nuclear engineers that have the knowledge to somewhat create, you know, the, these uh, weapons, these, these nuclear bombs. So my mind, I'm like, man, well, America could regulate it, but then maybe Canada is like, hey, we're not going to, or maybe Luxembourg, it's like, we're not going, or China, you know, you're like, so I'm like, totally. okay, I, I don't see that stopping. I see it accelerating. And, you know, I, I'm of this, I kind of have come to peace because I'm like, okay, you know, it's going to happen at some point where there's some super intelligence that's created. In my mind, how I rationalize it, this is kind of messed up. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just pretend that the purpose of people is to create super intelligence. And that's kind of our, our it's kind of like the sun is eventually going to swallow the earth and the earth is going to, you know, disappear. It's like, well, that's really scary. And it's really bad. And then, you know, the earth is going to be destroyed. But um, it's like so far in the future, you can't really control it. Who cares? You just just go, go, on, go on about your life. I'm like, well, hey, maybe the whole purpose of human evolution and our intelligence is to create a super intelligence that in, in essence or, you know, in some way ends up destroying us. It's like it's not great. It's not, you know, not ideal. But like it's, it's kind of unstoppable in my mind. It's, it's like the sun, super, you know, turning into a supernova. Yeah. 
I mean, that resonates with me, to be honest. It's like, it's like a snowball, right? Like the snowball is happening and there's like momentum, the sheer momentum of whether that's competitive forces or just humans desire. There's something in us that strives for something greater, you know? Like there is something in that and, and like every arc of like, you know, like, like technological revolution, whether that's like, you know, agriculture, or like, you know, the, you know, like industrialization and now this like digital era where multiple waves are playing out. Now, again, like kind of getting compressed and stacking on top of each other, often in unpredictable ways. Right. Like uh, I, I think there's no way to stop it, you know, so I, I'm very favorable to the let's pump the brakes in certain regards, wisely approach. I don't have the answers there, but that like intuitively feels like the right thing to do. But you might argue, hey, well, like what if China reaches AGI six months before us? Like that would be a bad outcome. Like, are you stupid? Like, why would you do that? I think it's a valid and fair argument. So I really hope like the public sector and like, you know, the DOD and like just the US government is thinking very deeply about this. Cause like- You say that, sorry to cut you off. It's funny you say that. Cause we just had like senators in the US yeah. government grilling the TikTok CEO be like, is TikTok connected to Wi-Fi? And the guy's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. And he's like, well, this is bad. You, you're like, I'm like, oh God, like we are, like, and we, you know, me and you are talking about AGI and trying to stop like the, the earth from, from being destroyed. And they're talking about TikTok and Wi-Fi, right? So I'm like, oh man, like it's not, not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this goes back to like, uh, certainly the politicians in the East seem to be more savvy about the technology itself. 100%. But then again, I think what that Senator was trying to ask was like, does TikTok harvest all the connected devices on Wi-Fi? I think that was the intention, maybe by staff. And then <laughs> it totally. came out, <laughs> it came out as like, oh, like, <laughs> it's like, and, and uh, obviously this, take. yeah, ultimate boomer taking the CEO of TikTok was able to, by the way, hats off to the dude for just enduring that onslaught and right. not losing his shit, man. Like I, yeah, I don't want that job. Like that's a hard job, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, and it sounds like, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be continue to be a hard one. I have faith there, man. Like I, I don't think the technology landscape, this is one unpo unpopular opinion I've had. I've noticed even, e e even throughout my career is like, I think a lot of us in tech have lost tr track of the fact that tech wouldn't have existed if not for the defense establishment. A lot of the technologies were created, like all the IoT stuff was made for like made in the Vietnam War. A lot of like early research into computing, the internet, ARPANET, all of that stuff. We've almost like wiped that slate clean and we're sort of like, oh, you know, it's just all like, you know, rainbows and sunshine. And, and then it's like we have rude awakenings like the Cambridge Analytica incident and, you know, TikTok algorithms like, you know, influencing trends for kids to do stupid things and at scale, you know. Intentionally, unintentionally, I don't know. Jury's out on that. But we sort of lost track of that. I think with AI, we kind of need to go back to that place where technology companies actually play a principal role in things like defense. And luckily, a lot of that has become more in vogue. Like, I don't know if you invest in defense tech, but like, you know, crap. I think about like, you know, Palmer Lucky. Everyone was just shitting on the kid left, right, and center, maybe for some good reasons, maybe for some for bad reasons. It was funny for me to see him back on. I don't know if like you're fond of fan of the All In podcast where they had him on. <laughs> I'll never forget now, like right away. Oh my god! I was just like, I grabbed a whole bag of popcorn for that one because it's like <laughs> that was amazing. That was absolutely phenomenal, and it was like right before they did the fireside chat. So I love that. But all this to say, I think because of the you know war in Ukraine, 
a lot of people are been like, oh yeah, like, holy crap, this isn't like some, you know, you know, conservative Republican and, you know, democratic debate about how we police the borders and like how we issue visas and all this other crap, you know, which I, by the way, I empathize with, I'm an immigrant, you know, God bless America, all that stuff. And I'm all for legal immigration at the same time. Like now suddenly it's finally cool and trendy to be like, yeah, maybe we should be investing in sensors at the edge. Maybe we should be investing in drone technology that allowed like, you know, Ukraine to essentially hold back an invasion from a pretty massive conventional army, right? So I think in a similar fashion, even if it's not about, you know, again, like atoms to your point about like drones, like physical harm can be done. You could attach things to them. They could be, you know, doing sensing and like sensing and like, you know, uh, doing signals intelligence. You don't want to democratize all that technology. I think all of that is true. But at the same time, I think my message to tech people out there and like in just like people in AI is like, we have to think about like the public and private applications now. And we have to think about them in tandem because if we don't, and we're utopia out there being hippies, like smoking some weed and singing Kumbaya, there are going to be a small number of bad actors that aren't nation states that are going to wield this technology for immense bad. And we need to put the safeguards in place to make that stuff happen or at least influence the public conversation. I think there's so many influencers out there like you that need to be getting this message out there so that it becomes for the next generation cool to think about these things. And hopefully we have some bright mind that figures out how to like, you know, deal with this like constant stacking of capabilities. We're digitizing ourselves more. These machines mirror us back, the good, bad and ugly. Because if we don't, like, I think this is the decline of the West. I truly think so. It'll just get subsumed into sort of like, you know, like the 19, like a dystopia beyond Orwell's wildest imaginations. I think that could happen unknowingly and unwittingly, even for things that are very innocuous, like carbon credit systems, right? Like that's essentially, you need a global surveillance system to make that stuff viable. And like, if we're talking about, holy crap, you can write an AGI in let's say five years on a laptop with some computers training that's cheaper. I think we're going to see a push towards surveillance on every device. And by the way, we already see instantiations of that. One example, if I may close with this, is let's take Apple's walled garden. I actually think Apple is really well set up to police something like this. I don't know what's going to happen with Linux. Microsoft, too, is well set up for this. Everyone's like, well, Apple is like privacy centric. Like, I mean, I give Apple all my data. I'm like, so like iMessage and blah, blah, blah. At the same time, they like announced a capability a little while back where it's like, yeah, we're just going to automatically like run ML, like, you know, perception algorithms and detectors on your imagery in your cloud storage and identify child pornography. All right. Really good. You know, I all, all for it. Let's make that happen. But you're basically running perception tech on your private imagery. And that's just one thing you're looking for. What happens in the future? So I think in this type of walled garden where everything is vertically integrated, I think maybe you could police people not writing the runaway AGI code. Maybe Apple will choose to have very strong terms and service about that and things you can and can't do. They've certainly taken a, compared to, let's say, the Android Play Store, they've taken a far more like pumping the brakes approach to you know, what kind of apps are allowed on there, what kind of content is allowed, but they've been able to do that. They've been able to pump the brakes because they own the walled garden. God knows what's going to happen in this freaking like Linux, 
you know, buy GPUs and just like do everything off the grid world. It could, it could get bad, but certainly we need to be thinking about it and not putting our head in the sand. That would be the message that I would, uh, that would, I would close on there. All right. So I want to do some predictions because, because you know, pr- predictions are always very fun. All right. So AI predictions, we'll do one year from now, three years from now, five years from now. And, you know, uh, j- just to throw out some ideas to, to get some, you know, conversation started. What are you thinking in terms of like, yeah, one, one, three, five, like, will people be, you know, dating AIs? Like, will people have relationships with AIs or, you know, will, will there be full movies like box office hits that are completely AI generated? Right. So I'm thinking about more fun, weird, uh, topics versus like doom. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's bring this back to positivity. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't know. I mean, like, uh, uh, yeah, people dating their dream waifu sounds kind of dystopian a little bit to me. It, it does sound dystopian, but also like, if that's your thing, then, uh, you know, it's your thing. More right? power to you. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think, I think, uh, it could have a greatly positive impact on mental health. Um, like an AI system that knows you better than you know yourself again here. I think like systems like walled gardens, like Apple are going to have such an advantage. God, I hope WWDC. Here's my prediction. I hope WWDC happens. They've got these beefy M2 plus chips. I hope Apple. Sorry, WWDC? Worldwide Developer Conference. Their de- Apple's Developer Conference happens okay, okay. this summer. And I hope they like show that you can run these like crazy, like you can run something like stable diffusion at 30 frames per second on like their M, new M series chip chips, which are like amazingly powerful. Like the fact that you can run an LLM on like a freaking $3,000 like laptop that you use in like in a coffee shop versus like a $15,000 GPU, let alone the machine you need to build to, to use that is wild. So I think like, I hope they have that. I hope they launch some sort of crazy Siri 2.0. And I hope every company does this. That's hyper-personalized. And then they also offer developer capabilities, just like Google's opening up Palm, opening eyes, opening up freaking, you know, uh, a GPT-4, yeah, just like these, like not the model itself, but like APIs to build around these models. I think we'll see some amazing things. I think talking to your personalized, like AI assistant or characters that play different roles and know everything about you is here to stay. I think I would argue people already dating like AIs on things like character.ai. If you look at the session links there, they're like far beyond anything else. And that makes sense, right? Like this thing knows you better than you know yourself. I think also things like the mental health crisis, particularly like, that's plaguing like younger generations, like millennials and Gen Z. Like, and a lot of us have aversions to go talk to therapists and all this other crap. Like, I think we'll be very content with talking to machines and these machines will be exceedingly good at reflecting back our introspections. And you know how people, people say podcasts when you edit them, they're sort of an introspection. I've only edited a couple of mine, but like that sort of self-reflection can be now assistive with these machines. So I think a lot of good stuff will happen there. I think we're going to see the rise of a whole new type of creator in the near term. It'll be assisted creation taken to the next level. A studio like will be able to take things to like Marvel cinematic universe and independent creator would suddenly be able to do things that a studio itself could do. Like you need a 15, 20 people to do this. No, I just need a couple of AI models, chain them together in my classical here and now workflow, no new tools. Things will be wild. And then, oh my God, what is Marvel going to do with this stuff, right? Like the treasure trove of like visual umami that like some of these like massive IP universes have, like 
does that empower a marketing manager to create contextual content on social media at the edge without needing to pay like millions of dollars to ILM and like digital domain and all these VFX houses? Probably. But does it create entirely new forms of content consumption? That I think will be the next step. So supercharged content creation in the near term, far more intuitive computing where you can interface with technology. It can reflect our thoughts back to us and help us reason about things we like and dislike and you know, maybe even solve like, you know, loneliness and mental health and all these other problems that plague us. But then in the mid to long term, I'm excited to see how this like reinvents consumption altogether. Like what are games like, right? Like, like in the early days of Web3, there were so many people that like got inspired by like the, what was that game called? Freaking like all these pr- massive Runescape? procedural, these procedural worlds. Like, uh, I, I think it was like Diablo, RuneScape. I'm sure like, oh, let, nice. let's take those as examples. I'm trying to remember where games, it's like, hey, there are infinite worlds that you can explore. Mm-hmm. No Man's Land? Oh, okay. uh, yeah, no, no Man's Sky. No Man's Sky. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Games like No Man's Sky that sort of were these like rules-based approaches to create this procedural world. I think finally now that'll be possible, right? Like to go back to the theme about generative AI populating the metaverse, gosh, instead of if being like this DLC pack that like everyone gets frustrated for paying another freaking $29.99 for reskinning Call of Duty or reskinning like, you know, freaking even freaking Fortnite, you know, uh, I, I think we'll see some really interesting ways in which people reinvent what it means to play with a game and how do you have like seasonal arcs in those games using generative AI beyond that all bets are off. I don't know. So that's how I think about it in the near term. It'll like help us accelerate content creation for existing mediums in the midterm. It'll sort of supercharge these like early stage, you know, new consumption mediums we've had. So interactive games on one hand and, uh, and, uh, and certainly interactive, like choose your own adventure type stuff that like folks like Netflix have played with Bandersnatch. That'll get supercharged. But in the long term, I don't know. It like kind of goes back to, is it going to be like all AI influencers? I hopefully humans are still at the, lo- at the center of it all. And we'll see some really, really interesting things emerge. So which industry in your mind will be the most impacted by AI the soonest? And, you know, like software development, you have Copilot, you have, uh, I think it's Ghostwriter with Replit. Um, so you have some pretty incredible tools there. Uh, obviously, media entertainment industry, you have tons of incredible content generation tools. Which which specific industry in your mind is going to be impacted the soonest? Look, I think it's going to be literally any industry that falls under the bucket of knowledge work. Anything that relies on manipulating bits for the la- for the most part, and certainly involves chaining together multiple tools to do stuff, and that can be anything from like, you know, the McKinsey's, the BCGs, and the Deloitte's of the world on like the consulting end to the agency folks to software development itself, right? Like we talked about, what is the what, what are the next app unicorns look like when you can just conjure up ops? You, you can just you can just conjure up applications with a prompt. Hey, make me an app that does this in the, in the world of disposable content and software. I think almost every industry that deals with digital tools and involves chaining them together to offer products and services are going to be absolutely disrupted and upended. Which one's going to have like the greatest monetary upside, I think is a little bit hard to predict. I think even OpenAI doesn't know what's going to happen there. It feels like this, like, again, early era of like, 
it's not a perfect analogy, but it's like the analogy that feels the best to me is we're at the like, we've got the smartphones now, let's say. And then we've got the Play Stores and the App Stores now. We don't know what the Uber is going to be. We're in this sort of like fart app trolloping stage where like certainly a lot of fun. A lot of people are building and playing things. Entirely new businesses will be conjured. At the same time, existing businesses will just like be completely democratized and capabilities that were sort of like reserved for very specialist few will go to the very, very many. So that's kind of how I think about it is like, where are opportunities to take things that were very boutique, high end, human capital intensive endeavors, like software enge engineering, even like software development. And what does that mean when you democratize that? But then there's second and third order implications of that happening. Those are very hard to predict. So I think of it of that in one way where I'm putting most of my attention, where I'm most excited about, where I think I have a unique viewpoint is in visual media. Undoubtedly, I'm excited about what visual media does. I think in one case in point I'll make there is like, you see a lot of backlash about AI art generation, Andrew. Like everyone's like, oh my God, AI art, this is like soulless thing. You're like, my IP, you barely see that on the text end, right? Like, and, and my thesis on why that is, is like, I think Web2 democratized text, there were blogs, people don't care if they're like Reddit threads got indexed into this thing. But there has been this barrier to create visual content. And it's been this broken model where you've got these VFX industries that are like simultaneously having like, you know, winning Oscars and like, you know, it's like, just like the people that these artists, the things that these artists have to endure, like it's been this like downward spiral that hasn't stopped. I don't think AI is going to help that. I think it's going to hasten that spiral. But I think from it, now that everything's democratized back to an indie can rival the output of a studio, a studio can start doing Marvel type things. And then Marvel caliber, you know, cinematic universes can just set a new standard altogether. I think we'll see some very exciting things. And so that's where I'm certainly going to put my energy and, and I think I have a unique perspective to bring to the party. Very cool. All right. Last question before closing questions. All right. This is one more prediction. When, when do we get AGI? <laughs> I have to ask. I have to ask. Oh, I think it depends on how we define AGI. If I think define, if you define AGI as everything a human can do, I mean, I give it, I give it like five to 10 years where it's sort of done all of that. I think the world we will see is like some really massive generalized models, like a, the trajectory where the multimodal AI movement is sort of going. I think we'll see some very interesting things come out of that. I think to truly have AGI, it needs to do everything a human can do. And I'll just say like, We'll get to a world where machines can do most of what humans can do in a purely digital world sooner than we get to that in a physical world. That is to say, there's a reason OpenAI pivoted from building robots that could solve Rub Rubik's cubes to, you know, uh, going down this like transformer based, you know, uh, you know, LLM and, you know, I mean, they're doing other things with diffusion models, whatnot, but this like kind of more. Let's solve the problem in the space of bits approach. I think the Adams thing is going to be elusive. I'm kind of happy. That's how you get Skynet, you know, to, to use a cheesy example there or the potential for it. But yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, I think we'll get to, in quotes, AGI in a purely digital sense where these systems, whether it's one system to rule them all, which is always the perennial debate, is it one system to rule them all or is it a federation of models that work in concert? Doesn't matter. I think we'll reach a place where functionally, You'll be able to do everything a human could do in a digital sense sooner. And then when it comes to physical sense, that'll come a little bit later. 
I really can't put a number on it. And I, and I'd hate to do that just cause I'll prove myself wrong, Andrew. So, you know, you did say five to 10 years roughly. So for but, the you know, solving the bits thing, I don't know about robotics. Like that seems like, well, so, but, but, but AGI to me is, is super intelligence because once you have AGI, it's a, a relatively short amount of time before you have super intelligence in theory. Yeah. That's one of the Bostrom scenarios, right? You have this sort of like hockey puck moment that follows after that. Have you seen the TV show person of interest, by the way? I'm not. You would love that show. Just if, if you, based on the questions you've asked me and like this conversation, uh, it was pre Snowden. It's like, the, the, it's by the younger, it's by Jonathan Nolan, the younger Nolan brother. And it just like has this, like, it paints this picture of sort of how an AGI comes online unbeknownst to humanity. And then eventually there are two AGI systems and one's even getting like, you know, entire governments to work at its behest without them even knowing. So there's this like sort of fast pickup scenario, right? Like where that could totally happen. We, it reaches parity with us in a digital sense. It like replicates itself everywhere and like, you know, there's plenty of science fiction about that. And you've certainly got smarter, you know, AI professionals and actual scientists, you know, like I'm an engineer and a product manager. I don't know anything about like AI research per se. I'm not a researcher. I've worked with the researchers, but these smart people, when they start freaking out, I notice. So like, I think you're totally right. <laughs> that could happen. And that's going to be very unpredictable. I think maybe that's going back to the anxiety. That's why people feel anxiety. Um, I think one of the points that have been raised is, Hey, if we've got in a Petri dish, something that's like on the cusp of AGI, why the freak are we putting it in this like public cloud infrastructure for Microsoft Azure? Like that seems like an awful idea. Like, shouldn't it be in this like freaking air gapped, like the XVP product for st uh, st stability? Uh, Chris Cantrell was making this analogy yesterday where he's like, yeah, we need this town. That's like, you know, there's like nuclear to go back to the nuclear analogy. We had these like towns back in the day where like a replica of human society where you could do nuclear testing, basically figure out like evacuation scenarios, all of the human factor stuff. And obviously like the hard science that you wanted to do with the impact of nuclear, you could test those things. Shouldn't we have air gap systems where this stuff is happening? So that's one thing. So like, again, like I, I, I'm a Libra, you know, and I like always go look at these two extremes. I'm like, yeah, it probably doesn't make sense to put this, these really powerful models Especially like what we see again as the tip of the iceberg, you know, like, I mean, Sundar just came out and said this with Bard and said that like, there are way more powerful systems out there. Like, you know, Sam says this, you know, said this in, in a recent interview with Lex that like, yeah, we keep having these like, oh crap moments when we like these newer models they're working on, like, holy crap. So it's like, all right, if y'all are freaking out, I hope they're thinking about putting them in like these more, more air gap systems. Now, whether that's like the machine itself you know, builds, whether that's like some implicit, like emergent property of it, learning a survival instinct in quotes, because that's somehow embedded in the, like the distillation of like human knowledge and all the stuff like that it consumes. I don't know about all that. Or if it's like some person that just like decides to go crazy and like, you know, like let loose these systems with their own intentions, God knows. But yeah, I mean, like, to wrap things up, I, th I mean, to, to wrap up the answer, I think like we got to tread carefully. And, you know, since these trends, again, like are stacking on top of each other, the freaking speed with which stuff is happening is faster and faster. I'm all from bre breathing from the fire hose. Like, like I love it. But at the same time, like 
it would be very naive of us on one hand to think that there is no downside to this. On the other hand, I think it would be very, very naive of us to think that there's only downside and we got to halt progress because that's how like you create an asymmetric situation in the world. And the only system I think we've seen to your nuclear example workout is one where like there's a bunch of powerful, you know, entities out in the world that kind of keep each other in check. And it's not perfect. Crap still happens, but it's the best example we have. So, you know, everything else is like a manifesto and I haven't seen it work in practice. So th those are my, those are my two cents on this, like very difficult and lofty question that I think will keep very bright minds occupied for, for the time to come. Totally. All right. We're coming up on two hours here. Time for the closing questions. Let's do it. What is the best piece of advice you've, you've ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received is like, be a perpetual optimist and have a relentless desire to learn. And I'll, I, and I'll put, put the current version of that, which is everyone wants to breathe from the fire hose today, but there's a lot of like anxiety. It's exhausting. Certainly I feel exhausted. We have these Twitter spaces every Friday at 3 PM Eastern. Uh, we're like a bunch of creative tech people get together. And we all are just like, Oh my God. Like, so the other piece of advice underpinning this to stay curious and keep learning in a sustainable fashion is to take things a week at a time, take things a day at a time. And in times of insane change, which we'll only see more of take things one hour at a time. It's the only way just don't, don't go ADD, jump all over the place. One thing at a time, one problem at a time and on and on and on we go. Love it. All right. What trait most defines who you are? I would probably say adaptability. The thing that served me the best in my career, and this relates to learning and curiosity, that's made me adaptable, I guess, I guess I would say, is, I mean, I've lived in a bunch of different countries, went to international boarding school, had to acclimatize myself to all sorts of like different contexts, cultural, you know, uh, political, freaking, you know, even, even like different types of like content creation. Like I, I love all of it. And there, there are, there are all these niches. So I, I managed to stay very adaptable and you know, that that's what I love doing. Like I voracious desire in me to just like, you know, reinvent myself every couple of years. And I've managed to do that. And uh, I'm currently embarking on my, my next adventure. I think like they're doing a decade in tech and like, yeah, you know, let's go be staff level and do all this fun stuff and launch the zero to one products and go do the Google IO thing and all that stuff. Done that. I think I'm super excited about reinventing myself and kind of creating this like pirate ship with a bunch of other pirates in this like very frothy ocean of innovation that's happening right now. And so uh, I'm excited to do that. And I would say the trait that most defines me and makes me relevant is this dude ain't going to turn into a dinosaur. This dude is going to evolve into whatever the next thing is and just keep going. That's awesome. All right. Last question. What motivates you? What motivates me is talking to cool people working with cool people and making cool stuff. You know, honestly, the two themes I started with, I have something in me that makes me want to connect the physical and digital world more inextricably than it, you know, is right now. I think I've certainly made a huge dent in that, perhaps enough impact for a lifetime. But I think like I'm excited to focus on the other trend that I brought up, which is blending reality and imagination. And the other way to look at that is just democratizing creativity. I'm genuinely excited about like the freaking like 12 year old me today 
that has like all these tools at their disposal, like not just the blenders of the world. Like, gosh, I have to, again, Maya was such a pain in the ass to learn. Like I've got all this bad muscle memory in me and I just can't move to a different tool now. So I just think of like, I want to build tools and experiences that inspire this like next generation of creator that helps them find their voice, whatever it is, but empowers them to turn their mind inside out and put it on whatever canvas, canvas of video and 3D today. And then whatever that turns into, whether that's the metaverse and beyond, who knows? But I would love to democratize creativity and let anyone blend reality and imagination. Incredible. Sir, this was absolutely amazing. I, like I, I, I not only feel like I, I learned just absolutely, you know, college, college plus plus level of, of information here, but also uh, just, I, I think that we, we, op- we broached a lot of topics that are very important. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to be talking about in the near future. And a lot of people are talking about now you were stellar. So if people wanted to find out more about yourself, follow your channels, here's a time to, to plug whatever you want. Thank you for having me. This has been a, a really fun conversation. I'm, I'm glad you got some value out of that. I'm really bad at the plugging thing. So let me try my best attempt at it. You know, if people want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, Bilavo Sadu. I'm on YouTube and TikTok, Billy Effects. On YouTube and TikTok, you'll find a bunch of scroll stopping content. It's where I use these tools to make compelling content. If you're interested in, in understanding, you know, uh, the analysis and insights of the intersection of creativity and technology, creative workflows for how you can make stuff like this. Definitely check out my Twitter and my Substack. My Substack is Creative Tech Digest. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with me, A, if you're a brand that's interested in doing really cool things at the intersection of creativity and technology, please hit me up. Uh, you can find my one link. Just search for Billy FX on Google. You'll find my beacons.ai link. And that has all my contact information at the end. Uh, and also, if you are a startup and a uh, established player building creation tools, I'd love to get in touch. I'm already talking to most of them. But if you're out there and you're a startup that has a desire to create something that all these creation incumbents aren't thinking about, I'd love to get in touch. I want to get involved in just a handful of advisory roles. So as I focus on being a content creator full-time and doing the brand thing, creating original content, I would love to still engage my product management shops and be of help to empower this next generation of creator. I don't want to build a startup myself. feels like the most chaotic time to go build a startup. And it seems like it's easy to raise money now too. But if you've raised money and you want a high impact advisor, hit me up as well. Same thing, BillyFX, Beacons.ai. If you just Google BillyFX or Bilavo Sidhu, that's B-I-L-A-W-A-L-S-I-D-H-U. You can find me, get in touch, and we'll make magic together. Amazing. Sir, thank you so much. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. See you.